Hey, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Question. Is chastity an outmoded idea in today's modern age? Our guest doesn't think so. In fact, he's written a book about it. So sit back and relax. Christian Grads Fellowship podcast starts right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I have Dr. Eric Silverman with us today. Um, Eric, thanks for, for, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So why don't you, uh, why don't you introduce, introduce yourself to our listeners, a little bit of your uh, curriculum vitae, if you will, and uh, give us a little bit of background. Sure. Well, I am a professor of philosophy here at Christopher Newport University. Um, I've been here since 2008. Uh, we are one of the state universities of uh, Virginia. Uh, we sort of focus on uh, classic liberal arts undergraduate education. Uh, uh, we try to get all of our students on campus. We have a, a smaller campus, uh, 5,000 students in total. And uh, it's, it's actually quite beautiful here. All the buildings have been rebuilt in the past 10 years and uh, we're near the coast. We're near history up next to Jamestown, Yorktown, Williamsburg. We're near the beach, Virginia Beach. Um, so, uh, so we love it here. And uh, uh, so, so that's uh, uh, where I get to work. Uh, my specialties, I've uh, uh, got my PhD from St. Louis University, uh, where I focused on ethics and the history of thought, especially medieval thought, especially, especially the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Um, so I've got uh, uh, five books now, uh, two monographs and three edited collections. Uh, my two monographs were both about uh, the virtue of, uh, of agopic love. And my uh, newest book is um, an edited collection on um, sexual ethics, uh, especially secular viewpoints towards the traditional virtue of sexual chastity. So uh, it's a Rutledge uh, applied ethics book. Uh, it's um, just come out. And, uh, you know, Rutledge is a great publisher, so I'm very excited about that. And uh, they told me they consider this the first edition, which uh, might uh, imply that there will be future editions. So, um, so yeah, so right now I'm uh, trying to talk to people about uh, the, the new book, get some attention, some attention for it, and, uh, uh, you know, hopefully uh, uh, be of service to people. Uh, I think there's a uh, a lot to be said uh, about sexual ethics and uh, almost all of it uh, tends to come from uh, a very one-sided place in the, in the academy. Uh, this is a much more um, broad spectrum approach. We have uh, over a dozen contributors and uh, we have uh, everything from very, very conservative contributors essentially uh, defending uh, what, what comes very close to the traditional Catholic position that uh, uh, chastity uh, is a good thing and should uh, be um, should take the form of uh, uh, no sexual activity outside of marriage and outside of potentially reproductive acts within marriage, reproductively oriented acts. Um, that's on on one extreme, and on the other extreme, we've got uh, people essentially arguing for uh, anything consensual or virtually anything consensual is good. You know, maybe addiction's not so good, so maybe you shouldn't be addicted. But but other than the those sorts of extremes, pretty much anything goes. 
Um, uh, on the whole, the, the collection is uh, more conservative than most, uh, most uh, sexual ethics discussions in academia. Uh, in part, it's kind of because of the way I framed it. I mean, most sexual ethics projects I'm aware of basically take the shape of this. Um, the, the general tone and the way that it's framed is, which of these outdated uh, rules do you think we should get rid of this year? Um, and uh, I kind of framed it in, in the terms of, well, we used to have this virtue of chastity. Um, it seems like we've had some problems since we got rid of the traditional virtue of chastity. So what aspects of chastity do you think maybe we should consider trying to, uh, to recover and, and get back? So it's the sort of thing so, where, it, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, so is that why, is that why you uh, approach this from a secular versus a religious account, right? Um, for a guy that studies agopic love from Aquinas, that seems like a, uh, a novel place to begin is with the secular argument versus the faith-based argument. Yeah, yeah. So, so here's an interesting thing. Well, so, uh, so two things. So first, um, the, the, the connection between the idea of love in general to sec love and sexual ethics very specifically, that, that's kind of an intuitive move to make. So, so that's kind of part of my interest. But uh, as someone who's historically informed, here's kind of an interesting, about, interesting thing about chastity. It wasn't specifically a religious thing. And even the religious thinkers didn't think it was a religious thing. So a, a specifically religious thing. So someone like Thomas Aquinas would say, well, of course, Christians should be chaste. But, you know, that's uh, the sort of thing that sort of any competent, well-designed culture functioning relatively well would, you know, approach, um, at least as, as its ideal, not that everyone in the culture uh, follows it, but at least the sort of goal that's held up as an, as an ideal. So um, if you look through the history of thought, uh, there are ancient Greeks with very conservative sexual morals, including people that you wouldn't expect. The Epicureans, who are, are famous for their hedonistic tendencies, um, Epicurus says, you know, um, sex never really benefited any man. And it's a wonder if it didn't harm him by the end of things. So um, the, the idea that uh, uh, chastity is a specifically religious thing, that's a very new idea and uh, rather contentious. Then um, it's not specifically a Western idea. I got a contributor uh, to discuss Confucian ideas of chastity. Uh, there are Asian cultures that have uh, very uh, traditional conservative morals. Uh, enlightenment, enlightenment thinkers, e even sometimes people who didn't live it out very well, uh, seem to endorse chastity. So Ben Franklin, uh, a paradigm uh, enlightenment thinker, uh, well known for his uh, sexual exploits um, and uh, well known uh, as a deist rather than a Christian. Um, he has chastity in his uh, book of virtues on his list of virtues and thinks that this is something that, that should be uh, advocated. So really it's uh, something that's happened just in the past 50 or 60 years that it's been come to be the, the thought to be thought that uh, chastity is somehow just a religious thing. But traditionally, um, you know, it's something that uh, appeared in a wide variety of cultures and a wide variety of secular thinkers thought that at least something, you know, at least some significant constraints on sexuality were, were needed. Maybe not the exact constraints that, um, that you know, Christians in our culture uh, today want, but uh, but still the idea that that anything consensual is a good idea 
that, that's that's pretty much a that, that's a very recent idea. So in, in my own book, one of the things that I advocate for in terms of change and change management is reframing a conversation, giving it a different context to get a different result. Um, hmm. Have you seen from your work approaching this from a secular versus a religious standpoint, have you seen that that reframing opens the conversation or, you know, how does that, how does that play out in your conversations? Well, I think what's, what, what I enjoyed about this, con- so there was, we held a conference first with uh, about 25 great papers. Uh, we had people from Yale, we had people from Baylor, we had people from across the country. We had uh, at least one international attendee. Um, you know, what was really enjoyable about it is it's just a different conversation than the conversation everybody has. And when you reframe things that way and you set up the starting point a little bit differently, you you investigate sort of nuances that, that don't always get uh, investigated. Um, so, so here is something that's really uh, a little odd about our culture. We really seem to obsess about sexual rules, just at least on the secular viewpoint, we really seem to only obsess about justice. So the only uh, restraint that, that uh, a lot of secular thinkers want to talk about today, well, is, is there a, a, a violation of justice somehow? Uh, you know, are, are you taking advantage of someone? Now, indeed, that is one traditional consideration. Um, but if you, again, if you look at the history of thoughts, a, a lot of thinkers, again, including a lot of um, secular thinkers, thought that chastity was somehow a, uh, an aspect of what was called temperance, about sort of uh, controlling your appetites, ideally, and had some things in common with controlling your, your appetite for food. Uh, appropriately. Now, nobody would ever think that uh, just every appetite for food, every desire for food is, ought to be indulged. At least no, no educated nutritionist would, uh, would, would think that. Uh, so in the same way, they thought that, you know, um, our appetites can mislead us. Uh, they can cause us to overeat and die early of heart problems. Uh, and in the same way that our, our sexual uh, appetites can mislead us. They can uh, get us addicted to things. They can uh, cause us to get uh, enmeshed with people who objectively just aren't good for us individually. It can cause us to make unwise decisions. Um, you know, and, and that is completely separate from the sorts of uh, justice consent type conversations that uh, most secular thinkers in our culture are willing to have. So that was one, one point that I thought was really important. So when you reframe this conversation, um, like you, I, believe, I believe what you said is you were gonna you were gonna look at different nuances, um, which I think is very interesting. Um, did any of the essays that were submitted to you uh, take you off guard or catch you by surprise? Yeah, yeah, Andy. There, there was one that I really liked. It, it was by a, a postdoc named uh, Dustin Crummett, and he talked about the symbolic value of chastity. And he, he kind of took a position, and, and I'm just sort of roughly approximating it here, uh, but his position was something like this. Um, chastity in the form of, uh, you know, no sex before marriage and sex exclusively within marriage. This is indeed uh, a, a kind of um, disproportionate sacrifice. Uh, it, it seems like, yeah, okay, the, it, it does seem to be burdensome. We see why, why people have wanted to sort of shy away from this. Yet, um, there's a value 
to disproportionate sacrifice. And a lot of the, the symbolic value comes within, uh, within, a, within a relationship. Um, if your, your spouse understands that you are this disproportionately committed to them, that you would give up uh, the, the potential for billions of potential sexual partners to commit to just one, um, that is a, a substantial sacrifice and that, that has symbolic value and, and helps, um, helps build, uh, build a relationship. In our conversations, he compared this to uh, uh, the value that Christians have, uh, have often attributed to martyrdom. The idea simply being that, um, well, look, if you're in the ancient world, it would be easy to say, well, gee, why can't I just worship Caesar along next to Jesus and not really mean it when I say it for Caesar? I mean, is that really worth the value of, of risking my life over? Um, but the, the traditional Christian view was actually it is. And why? It's because it, it demonstrates our committedness uh, to the, the, the value of monotheism, the truth of that. Um, and if uh, all Christians had just sort of weaseled uh, in that way, um, perhaps our, our religion uh, wouldn't have uh, spread historically uh, to the degree that it did. So in the same way, the symbolic value of that kind of disproportionate sacrifice uh, to be chased to a specific uh, monogamous marriage, um, that's, uh, that has a value to it, and it, it communicates something about the value of the marriage and the sexual relationship. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a lot in the romance literature that would back that idea up, right? The idea that, that men want to go out and they want to conquest and they want to capture and they want to drive forward. Um, and by tying themselves to one woman, um, they give that up. Um, and the woman tends to civilize them, right? Um, but in return, they get so much back from that. I think that's, that's the other half of that argument is that um, they get, they get this, this wonderful home, um, that's traditionally, it's talking about very traditional, more ancient romance language kind of times. Sure, right? The man sure. would go out and conquer the woman would provide, would provide hearth and home and stability and that place to come back to. Um, and it's funny. I was, I was listening to a podcast and another podcast just this week. Um, and they were talking about this very thing. What is it that, um, because we're, we're seeing fewer and fewer millennials getting married. We're seeing fewer and fewer millennials even get into a relationship. Um, at this point in time. And so how do you see that same dynamic playing out today if, if, if there's not that, um, that civilizing of our men um, and, that, and that virtuizing of our women, um, the way the, the classic romance literature would, would suggest is, is the way God intended human nature. And I know we're kind of drifting off the secular into the, into the sacred, but um, I live in the world of the sacred. So um, where, do you see, where do you see this trend of getting married later, not getting married at all, not having a relationship. Um, we're seeing birth rates decline in the U.S. We're seeing all this stuff. Give me, give me, your, give me your insights on that because I'd, I'd be very curious to hear that. Sure, sure. And, and Andy, uh, even uh, apart from the statistics, I, I can just sort of verify anecdotally uh, that I know uh, several young men whose uh, sort of life ambitions are to, to get a, uh, an adequate job to pay for a two-bedroom apartment uh, very good, the, the best level of internet connection, and play internet games. Um, and uh, uh, they're not particularly interested in uh, uh, romantic uh, uh, sexual marital uh, entanglements. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think a, a lot of the reason is, uh, I, I mean, you know, if you, you press them, uh, 
uh, their uh, sexual outlet appears to be porn, pornography. Uh, and uh, and by the way, there is a, a whole chapter in this book, in my book, about uh, the, the widespread issues connected to uh, to pornography. Um, I, I don't know if uh, if you even need to endorse the kind of uh, sort of gender narrative behind your 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 account there, just to say, well, look, people not having relationships, that's got to be a bad thing. Um, you know, people not being willing to reproduce that, 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 you know, just long-term, that, that, that's not really that, that good. I mean, in, in part, because here's the best retirement plan anyone can have. The best retirement plan anybody can have is that you need close, trusted relations who are going to make sure you're okay. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, to take care of you at home and, uh, to invest into you the way that, Parents invest into children when they're young, even when you're you're not uh, able to do a whole lot for yourself. And people who have those kinds of close, intimate relationships, um, uh, you know, frankly, that I think they tend to live years longer. I've no, I've I've seen this firsthand. On the other hand, if you get institutionalized and get put in a in a home of sorts, though the the level of care now it, it sometimes medically necessary, but um, but apart from that. Uh, you're never going to have the kind of attention that you would have from a committed spouse, uh, a committed adult child who's willing to watch after you. Um, so if you don't build these relationships over time, it's going to cause problems uh, long term. Um, and uh, and some of these things, you know, it's just very hard to institutionalize effectively. I mean, you know, we all know, um, you know, daycare just it generally it just isn't as good as as the one-on-one -on -one care you could get at home if, uh, if you've got a stay-at-home parent. Uh, and, and again, this doesn't have to be the, the mother. I, one of the, the, the stay-at-home parents I respect the most is a stay-at-home father of five I know who's homeschooled his five children. And he runs a, 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 a lawn-keeping business on the side. I mean, you know, these are the sorts of uh, creative things we can do in this era. So all that to get back to your question, what's going to Happen. I mean, we're seeing a breakdown in relationships. Uh, you, you see it throughout the culture. There, there's a lot of um, just sort of distrust between uh, uh, the, the, the sexes. And if you listen to what young people are told, um, men are, are told that uh, uh, long-term committed relationships will inhibit their sexual opportunities. And, uh, and it seems to be that, that women are told that uh, men will hold them back or just men in general can't be trusted. Um, and I, I would say at the very least, you know, I, I tell my own daughters, you know, make sure whoever it is you, 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 you commit to, make sure they're worth committing to. I do think there's something to be said for having uh, higher standards than people uh, have had at some times in the past. We don't want to just grab whoever is uh, closest to us at the age of 18 and say, hey, we should get married. That's uh, probably not a, a great strategy. Yeah, you're don't don't make me put my dad hat on because I have a daughter as well. So. Um, yeah, we don't want to we don't want to go there. No, I don't know that the, the kid's been born yet. That's good enough for my daughter, but that's just me. Um, you know, um, that's that's not true. I'm sure there's a, a very fine young man out there for my daughter somewhere. Um, well, and that's part of the the challenge, Andy. Uh, uh, we are creating. Uh, you know, people in our society that now have very high expectations on what 
uh, a good spouse would be like. Um, but we, we haven't done anything. We've done very little to encourage them uh, to develop themselves. And, and part of that is, you know, having no care for chastity is, is part of uh, is part of what uh, uh, can undermine, you know, future trust. Uh, if uh, someone was faithful to you before you were married, uh, in terms of avoiding premarital sex in general, it's a lot easier to trust them after you're married. Um, on the other hand, if they've been with lots of partners, um, you know, you, it, a lot of people tend to think, well, you know, can I really trust this person? Are they going to be satisfied with this one relationship or do I have to keep an eye on them every time they're alone with somebody uh, I don't know well? I mean, this, that idea runs all the way back into the, into the early 80s when I was doing an undergrad. Josh McDowell um, wrote extensively on the idea that the secular culture has um, basically said that um, we've written out in this almost a quote that we've reduced sex to nothing more than a physical act, no different than getting a drink of water from a fountain. That's almost a quote from Josh McDowell. Mm. Um, how do we, how do we, how do we people of faith, right? Because, you know, we'll, we'll I'm going to kind of, we'll switch this up a little bit. How do we, as people of faith, you know, you, you approach this from a secular standpoint and that's great. And I love that. I love that position. How do we, as people of faith, make that strong stand in our culture um, because we're trying to shape, you know, part of what Christian grads fellowship does is we're culture shapers. How do we then begin to shape this culture? What advice would you give to my student leaders on campus, to the donors that are listening, to owners of, of businesses that are supporters, to parents that are listening? Um, what advice would you give them? What's the, what's that, that one takeaway you can give our, our listeners today? Mm, no, uh, no pressure. Um, now, I would say, uh, let's get back to that, that Josh McDowell idea. Um, the idea that, that there's a danger in reducing sex, sex to just an action, an external action like a drink of water. One of the ways that we all should think about morality is a little bit different, frankly, even different than the way that uh, many Christians think of morality. Morality isn't just about a bunch of, a set of external actions that we do. You know, don't lie, don't steal, don't, you know, don't, don't do these things, do do these things. Um, and that's how a lot of uh, Christians think of it. And here, I think I'm uh, borrowing something from Dallas Willard here. There was a movement amongst Christians uh, a decade or two ago uh, they would wear these little uh, bracelets that said WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, and, and I believe it was he, he that said this. Um, really, that's kind of the wrong question. The question isn't what would Jesus do or what would any moral exemplar do, but who would Jesus be? Um, because you can't do the sorts of things that Jesus or another moral exemplar would do unless you become the kind of person that, that they were. Um, so otherwise, just saying what would someone do, that's kind of like um, stepping out onto the basketball court and saying, okay, well, now that I'm on the basketball court, I want to act like a basketball player. I should ask, what would LeBron James do? Well, LeBron James would jump like eight feet straight up, do a 360 and dunk it over his head, um, you know, and, and, you know, be a dominant basketball player. But I can't do that. Why? Well, in part because I'm not nearly as tall as him, but also because I don't live the way he does. 
I don't exercise my body the way he does. I don't eat the way he does. I don't train the way he does. I don't stretch the way he does. I haven't trained my mind to view the basketball court the way he has. Um, so in the same way, in the, in the moral realm, we have to think about becoming people of, of virtuous character um, and not just uh, here is a list of don't do these things versus we should do these things. Um, and, uh, and that's not just my idea. That's not just Dallas Willard's idea. That's an idea that goes at least as far back as Aristotle. Um, and, uh, and I think that's the, the better way to, uh, to think about character. So what should we be doing, especially about sexuality and sexual relationships? Honestly, a lot of this has to begin at home. I mean, if, if we have the, the high quality marital and sexual relationships that, uh, that, that I think chastity and other interpersonal virtues can lead to, I, I think it will make it more attractive. And we want to, um, as faith communities, we want to build space where we build into uh, our own families and encourage other families um, in, in that sort of uh, a quest for, uh, you know, excellence in, in relationships. I mean, because otherwise, I mean, look, I don't want to tell uh, young people today, well, just save yourself uh, for marriage and then just marry, just be a mediocre person other than that. And, uh, uh, and, and you'll, you should just be a mediocre person. They should just be a mediocre person. It's got to be part of a, a broader um, sort of a, a agenda of character and virtue. So if you are a thoughtful, kind, loving person in many ways, that will express itself very well within in marriage. And now we're getting to material, frankly, from my other books, uh, The Prudence of Love and The Supremacy of Love, where I talk about what it's like to be a, a, a loving person. If you're good at being a loving person in general, you'll be good at being a, a caring, loving person in marriage. Uh, and this, again, is the point about character. Character uh, both exists within, uh, within our, our private relationships, but you know, it's, it's who we always are. This is why you, you don't want to hire an accountant who you know cheats at cards, um, because they're the same person, whether they're in the accountant's office or whether they're playing cards. Now, are there uh, accountants who cheat at cards who don't cheat on taxes? Probably, but still the, the character is a, a broad tendency and whoever you train yourself to tend to be in, in your private life, you're gonna tend to be that person in your, in your public life, in your work life. Um, so we, we want to be, uh, uh, we want to aspire for the, these virtuous ideals. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the, the virtue of sexual chastity is just one of those many sexual, one of those many virtuous ideals. Hey, Eric, thanks. I appreciate you, uh, you being with us today. Um, one more time, tell me about your book. Sure, the book is uh, the Rutledge Research and Applied Ethics, Sexual Ethics in a Secular Age. Is there still a virtue of chastity? Um, the book is currently available in hardback and uh, on, on ebook. The ebook is affordable, the hardback is not. Um, uh, but uh, I do want to encourage, I, I really hope that pastors and counselors will, will uh, get uh, access to this book because I think 
uh, it's good for that. While while it's good for Christian pastors and counselors to think biblically, it, I think there's also a great benefit in, in thinking through and understanding what are the the, the best thinkers in uh, in our culture saying about chastity these days, and what are the the arguments that are considered plausible and the viewpoints that are considered plausible strictly on a, a secular basis and not just on uh, on the basis of uh, of religion. That's fantastic. Well, you know, uh, Eric, thank you. We appreciate you spending some time with us today. Um, folks, that's the podcast. Uh, we are thrilled that you've taken time once again to, uh, to hang out with us this week. Um, as always, if this kind of content is something that uh, is of benefit to you, of value to you, um, we need you to head on over to christiangrads.org and become one of our partners because the only reason we can produce this kind of content is we've got really super great partners just like you. Um, so I want you to, uh, to, to join us next week um, and we'll be back with another really interesting guest, another really great podcast. Um, in the meantime, go in peace. Thank you.